0: Welcome to Hell is for Hyphen. It's for April 2012. I am writer hyphen critic hyphen gamma radiation exposed physicist with anger issues, Lee Zachariah. And with me as always is...
1: Hi, I'm uh, writer hyphen director hyphen uh, star-spangled symbol of patriotic freedom,
2: Paul Anthony Nelson. And with us today is our very special guest. Yes, hi, my name is John Bennett. Uh, I am a creator of artwork hyphen person. Creator of artwork. Yeah, you know that's what I call artist, comedic artist. <laughs> yeah, because you know I don't use that word comedian.
0: Now this is going to be a tough one to talk about because uh, the people who haven't seen the Avengers yet include America and yourself, John.
2: Yes, <laughs> yes. I'm trying to keep it on the down low, but I will see it this week. I think.
0: Well, we'll try to speak obliquely about it. Or mm.
2: well, you could just plug your fingers in
0: your ears and go yeah. la 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 the yeah. whole time. No, that's all right. Paul.
1: Yes. Avengers. The Avengers. Um, I almost thought we should start with your reaction because I I feel like I'm going to be the counterpoint. I thought the Avengers was a lot of fun. Um, Let me say that on Front Street and let that be kind of the the main uh, signpost. Um, I'm going to start with what Whedon does well first, which is he brings his gift for team dynamics honed on years of Buffy and Angel and Firefly to this it balances all of the different styles of the characters brilliantly. Um, everybody feels like they get their moment in the sun. It's not a film where this could easily be you know, time Iron Man and his amazing friends, but mm. it's not. It's Iron Man gets, you know, and Cap and Hulk all get as, and even Black Widow and Hawkeye um, all get as much focus as each other. Um, so it does that really well. And so in that essence, it feels like a genuine team movie and Whedon's got this great gift of revealing character through dialogue and in this he's, he he brings that to the fore as well um, there's some terrific gags in here that just nail who these people are it does live up to the spectacle it's the biggest Marvel film to date so they look like they've spent a little bit of because Marvel are kind of notoriously stingy in a lot of ways um, they generally get away with it but in this they seem like they've genuinely pulled out the stops and you know it's got a pretty pretty solid second act and a rousing third act that's what it does well I think I was really scared for the first half hour of the film because I thought the first half hour was genuinely awful. Blockbuster 101 wrote kind of, this is what we need to do. Characters just seemed to be kind of phoning it in. All the dialogue seemed really perfunctory. Everything just kind of clanged. There were some you know, nice bits here and there, but for the first half hour, I was really frightened that, oh God, this film that I've been looking forward to for years since they announced that this was going to be the culmination of the Marvel films to date, being Iron Man, uh, the Incredible Hulk, Iron Man 2, Captain America and Thor, um, was going to suck. And the other thing is too, that I wanted that kind of Magnificent Seven, Ocean's Eleven thing, where you feel so excited about everyone coming to everyone being recruited from separate places, and you know, we find what they're doing, and and we get that great sort of, I don't think this film did that particularly well either. I, I thought it was really kind of naff. And... Thankfully, once they're all in the same room... The th- I mean, they're all such great actors. It's uh, one thing. The Marvel films are all incredibly well cast. And so once they're all in the same room and they're riffing and the theme begins to come out, it, it starts to get really entertaining. And then it gets to the third act, which is basically the huge action film type sort of scenario I will mention to date too that the film does kind of just jump in there as well which is something that I'm not sure was a good decision I I feel like it it felt like you needed to see the other films to get into this one I don't think it starts like a standalone film which I think was one of my other problems with the first half hour of this film it, if you just watch the Avengers you'd be seeing these people running around and nattering about the Tesseract and about S.H.I.E.L.D. and you'd be wondering what I don't know what any of this is um which is fine because it is technically the sixth film in a series but on the other hand it's like well it is called The Avengers and it is the first team film and really should be built as a standalone film back to the third act the third act is yeah filled with action and there's some great character action moments Um, I think that they do Whedon does manage to write the characters fight scenes in a way that does define each of the characters and they all fight differently and they all do different things but the action is endemic of something that's been really bugging me about studio films lately, and it kind of spoiled this third act a little for me, is it looks like a Michael Bay film. And it's coherently, like, it's it's a lot more coherently shot than Bay, but it's still that shaky cam, POV, swooping through buildings, large metal industrial things, toppling buildings and snaking around things. And it's like, really? You, this looks like every other film out there, guys. I really didn't want this film to look like every other film. And so in the end, I do recommend The Avengers. I think superhero fans will just love it. I think from the po- overwhelmingly positive reviews it's gotten so far, I think the third, first, second and third acts are strong enough to make people forget that first act. But overall, I, I, I give it. I think it's fun. I think all the actors are great. Whedon's work is terrific where he can you know make a mark. And uh, yeah, it's a very qualified like. Lee?
0: And that's all the time we have. John, thank you so much <laughs> for joining us. After seeing the Avengers, water tastes better. The <laughs> air the air smells sweeter. The world is just generally a better place. <laughs> I, I love this, not unequivocally, but the equivocations I have are so minor. Uh, and have actually dropped away as a, the more I've thought about it. And I'll get to that. Soon, but I think the reason the film works so well—I mean, this is one of my favorite superhero movies—I think it's just it, it's extraordinary, uh, and it's because, as you say, Whedon's so good at, at character and the dialogue, and I, I think the action. I'm not seeing the Bay stuff that, that you're seeing. I'm uh, the third act blew me away because it was so coherent, and 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 all the action was motivated by character, but the scale of it was extraordinary, um, which I don't get from Bay. I just get you know epilepsy from <laughs> Um You didn't think some of the
1: action just felt like... There's, there's some scenes of things being destroyed that just feels a bit like action for action's sake. Like It just felt a little bit elongated.
0: No, no. I, I liked that it was so big because I don't just want a standard uh, action film third act. I don't want a standard superhero third act for this film. I want it to feel epic because there are so many of them in there and I just wanted it to keep going. And I never get, got bored with it. Uh, I did initially feel like that first act was a bit... I I wasn't disappointed by the first act, but I I thought it was going to start stronger. Hmm. And then the other day I realised something. What is the one criticism that we keep hearing about uh, Iron Man, Iron Man 2, Incredible Hulk, Thor, and Captain America? The main criticism, even from people who like them, is that the third act, not so much. Hmm. Even I, I love all those films, but even I was watching going, oh, we're in the third act now is that I thought this was just an extended second act. Mm. This film is the third act to all of those films. <laughs> and we don't
2: need to pretend like we don't need to see them as standalone films anymore. Do you think this is because uh of all the the reviews have been so good that um it's more of a relief thing because I know I was really frightened that it was going to be terrible and they had that thing where where they chuck in five villains mm. and and it just gets too much and i thought that's what was going to happen with this
0: i've never really been worried just because i i'm such a joss whedon fan that the moment they announced him doing it i just knew he'd be able to handle the character mm. stuff and the action stuff and uh, I, i've been confident ever since then i was a little worried it wouldn't match my high expectations but yeah but it did Uh, which is saying something because my expectations were through the roof.
1: Yeah. Yeah, look, as I said, I think the film does a lot of things right, but there's a lot of things that just
0: didn't quite... And the story you could write on the back of a postcard. The Mm. Bay comparison, I I don't see with The Avengers. I do see with Battleship. Yeah, well, that's more overt. Like, Berg coming out and saying, I wanted to make a Michael Bay film. Did he actually say that? Yes. Because I looked at it and I thought, he really wants to make a Michael Bay (laughs) film, and to his credit, he failed. Uh, Because it's... (laughs) It's more coherent than a, yeah. than a Michael Bay film. It's still not good. It's a Michael Bay film with half the budget, basically. Like, or
1: two-thirds of the budget.
0: Can I tell you what I like or maybe about it this isn't. film? I don't know. Because it looks it's, cheaper. A lot of people have been sort of ragging on the film for being uh, about aliens. You know, why, why are there aliens in there and so on. But if you look at the idea of the board game, it's death from above coming to these little battleships, you mm. know. And... And I kind of love that they've taken that to its logical conclusion. And the I think da- they did that quite a bit. Like, there's the sonar stuff as well. Yeah. Like the- and that's, that's good. Yeah. And I love the idea that we're the aliens, the audience, in terms of the board game. We are the invading aliens destroying these battleships. <laughs> uh, from that standpoint, I liked it. Uh, what I didn't like about it was everything else about it. <laughs> <laughs> I love, my favourite stuff was the dialogue. Like
1: every <laughs> single line just felt like a first draft placeholder. You know, as a writer, when you're writing first draft, they should, they need, we, I, I just want to get to the next situation. Okay, guys, there's something humorous here. Like, look out, guys, I'll come back and rewrite that. Except yeah. nobody came back and rewrote it, they just
0: put it into production. I, what I would have liked is, is if they went out on somebody saying, take that mother f-, and then they cut. Because they only did it like two or three times. And mm. I thought if they did it five or six more times, <laughs> that could be like a t-shirt. Yeah.
1: I like the whole useless subplot with the, you know, model girlfriend and the bionic veteran. That I, was fun.
2: I actually can't believe that this is actually based on a on a board game. And I hope this becomes a theme with... <laughs> with films from now on I want to see Pictionary (laughs) the motion picture uh, maybe Trouble Scrabble 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 Scrabble. (laughs) I think Pictionary would be a romantic comedy yeah yeah.
1: you know I've I've had this idea Hollywood listen I've had this idea (laughs) about Jenga being a building that begins falling down you know it's it's a building it's foundations where you know like an all star towering inferno style movie but you know what I mean if you're starting off with a blank page there's always a chance to make it good they haven't really tried here, other than some nice conceptual parallels. I think they've just this film just totally screws the pooch. And it, and it has that sort of jingoism that a lot of Michael Bay films have, mm. this sort of rah-rah American stuff. There's some genuinely absurd moments in it that I kind of liked, and I wish the whole film was like that. Yeah. But it, I don't think it
0: owns its ridiculousness, r- it ridiculousness comes close. enough. I think casting Taylor Kitsch is a good step in that direction. <laughs> Uh, what
1: is what is that guy doing like he's okay on
0: Friday Night Lights isn't he I've never like, seen it though. I don't
1: know what the deal is with his film career but he's just he makes sucky films and he sucks in them
0: I do love his last name though I gotta yeah. say yeah. Liam Neeson's there to pick up a paycheck he clearly looks like it he was good on the poster for the film I thought yeah, yeah his I- name being on it yeah That was a good addition to the film.
1: Let's not. Should we talk about Rihanna or would that just be unkind?
0: I really think she should go back to doing whatever it is that she's famous for. (laughs) Uh, She's probably better at whatever that is. (laughs) Hmm. It's just... She can probably do that. Yeah, that was not impressive.
1: I think it does pull out the spectacle at times. I think there are some pretty... You know, there are some pretty well-mounted Michael Bay-esque sequences that are, as you say, a bit more coherent than Bay's style. Um, you know, like, I I did crack up at the bit when <laughs> the old men on the retired ship had just been yep. standing on the ship ready to go during this whole battle. Uh, you know, like, there were some moments
0: that kind of raised a chuckle, but most of all, it, yeah, it mostly just sucks. Another film I don't want to talk about <laughs> is Salmon Fishing in the Yemen. Oh. Because it's not good... Uh, I only want to bring it up because I recognise that from this point onwards it's going to be an uphill battle convincing people that the book is good and I just want to get that out there. So you've read the book? I've read the book, yeah. Mm. And it's, it's yeah. Who's the director? Lasse Hellstrom.
1: Oh, okay. So yeah, he's a bit of a red flag for me. Yeah,
0: I know, but I keep coming back to my life as a dog. Yeah. That's one of my favourites. I favorites. mean, Sider
1: House Rules was okay.
0: Yeah. But Chocolat was okay.
1: Yeah. He makes a lot of okay yeah. movies. He's not someone I get excited about. So, yeah. Yeah.
0: Back in 1995, there was a film called Haine, which signalled uh, the emergence of a guy called Matthew Kasowitz, who has gone on to act in a lot of films and direct a lot of films, but none of them have really hit as hard as Lahaine did. Now he's made Rebellion, which I think is finally the film I wanted to see when I saw La Haine. I thought this is the sort of thing he should be making. This is about the late 80s uh, rebellion in New Caledonia during the French presidential elections. It is one of the most tense, kinetic war films. It's, it's just an extraordinary... There are two sequences which I, was, I nearly fell off my chair watching. Two just jaw-dropping sequences from this film. I, I just can't believe that this film has not been a bigger deal. Wow. Have you seen? No, it? I'm really looking forward to it though. Yeah, it's um, mostly f- what you've told me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, look, I not a lot of people haven't seen it and the people who have haven't seemed to respond to it that it's much, easy, which astonishes me because it's it's just it's so good. Wow. This must be the place. Yeah, I'm really this, intrigued about this one. This is this film should not work at all. It really should be bad. It's basically a Robert Smith style rock star. He's living in self-imposed exile in Ireland. He's married to Francis McDormand, who is a firefighter, and then goes to America to hunt Nazi war criminals. (laughs) (laughs) And he spends the whole time talking like this. And I'm not 100% sure why it's so good. It's a relatively straightforward narrative, the way it's structured, but it's told in such an esoteric. Manner, like the soundscape and the editing and jarring framing that that the director uses, and I can't remember his name right now. Uh,
1: Paolo Sorrentino.
0: Oh, nice work! It's it's symphonic in the way he brings it all together to make this thing that you can't tear your eyes away from. It just reminds me of uh, Lynch in the way that uh, Lynch takes what's familiar in reality, uh, uh, things that should be familiar and just twist them so they're kind of wrong and you don't know what's wrong about them but you can't stop looking at them because they don't feel right. Mm. That's the feeling I get from that that film. And I also got it to a small extent from Café de Flore. Don't know if I'm... I've been saying Flora for ages and then I heard someone (laughs) say floor the other day. uh, You know, flora, I don't know, whatever it is. Café de Flore. And this is kind of like... A sedate Gaspar Noé film, okay. Really, like without any of the jumping, you know. No, without the the rampant strobe lighting, the rape, the explicit <laughs> sex, the uh, rampant drug taking. None Th- of that. That's it. If you strip that stuff away, <laughs> you yeah. get this film, and uh, yeah, it's um. You have what exactly? <laughs> <laughs> you have a normal film, in. yeah, yeah, <laughs> a normal <laughs> film. No, and it, but again, it's just how how. Noé looks at reality, and I kind of got that sense from, you know, How He Sees the World, I got that sense from from this film, which is, it's it's a very hard film to describe to people who haven't seen it, and as I discovered after the film, talking to people who had seen it, it's hard to describe to someone who has just walked out of the film. <laughs> and Sounds intriguing
1: already, because it just sounds so different.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and it takes a big leap of faith, and there's a point at which... It's either going to lose you, oh, okay, or it's going to win you over even more. It's a bit of a red state style, yeah, Sleep. exactly. Yep. That moment, yeah, that's yep. it. That moment where you're either gone or you're yep. won over, and I was won over. So that's that's one you've really got to see. Closer to home, closer to well, home being reality, I guess, <laughs> a recognisable world is Terence Davies' uh, "The Deep Blue Sea," based on the Terence Radigan play which is a melodrama and a lot of people have been responding badly to it because we just don't have that sort of language of melodramas these days or, or people just react badly to them. Mm. It's Rachel Vice and... And Loki, Tom and Hiddleston. And Loki, yeah, Tom Hiddleston. Who you? I love. I'm, I'm really liking his work. He's incredible. He's yeah. having an amazing month. Rachel Vice is amazing in this. Okay, because I,
1: I very rarely find her amazing. I always find her adequate. Like, I think like, she's good. Yeah, bit, well, when she's got the right role... Constant
0: is about the only time she's excited me. And even better than the two of them is Simon Russell Beale as her husband. And he's mostly known as a stage actor in the UK and and one of the best you know stage actors of his generation. And he's been doing a lot more film work these days, which is great because he you can't take your eyes off him. Right. Those are the films.
1: That's that's the indie round Gee, I feel like I've contributed to the second half of this conversation. (laughs) Me too.
2: Really (laughs) well
0: now now the comedy festival's <laughs> over, John. These are the films you need to catch yeah, up on. Yeah, yeah.
2: I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, Battleship Maybe. and Salmon Fishing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to see Battleship. Just, just to laugh.
1: Okay, um, well, with the World Wide Web um, basically redefining the way we discuss and disseminate cinema these days and popular culture just in general... Uh, spoiler culture has become a bit of a buzzword these days with um, a, a, a lot of people having their favourite TV shows spoiled as they screen in the US and even even American viewers who, you know, the East Coast get it before the West Coast and the East Coast get on Twitter and talk all about it and spoil it for the West Coast. And it's become quite a big bugbear of, of most people um, and mo- most people that are on uh, social media. And it's particularly pertinent to movies with uh, the new horror movie co-written by Joss Whedon and Drew Goddard called uh, Cabin in the Woods, which is apparently quite innovative and turns the Haunted House, kids you know, kids in a Haunted House movie, on their head. Now, we've managed to avoid spoilers for this film so far, but now with the news that first uh, road, Village Roadshow, we're going to release it in Australia on July 12th, despite it being released in the US and
0: the UK in April.
1: Now, uh, as of yesterday, we get the news that they're releasing it
0: direct-to-DVD. That may change by the time you're listening to this, but at time of recording, it's going straight to DVD.
1: So, which has angered a lot of fans. But also, with its release up in the air, um, a lot of people are having to sort of wonder, okay, well, how long do we have to dodge these um, Cabin in the Woods spoilers? And it just sort of leads us to think, like, where are we at in regards to, to spoiler culture? Like, when, how long does a film have to be out before it's spoiler-proof? What did we do before spoiler culture? You know, it's like, well, how did, you know, we've got reviews that seem to give away plot twists, Roger Ebert's a bit guilty of this of late. Mm. It doesn't seem to have been a factor before a few years ago, but now it's
2: everywhere. It was easier to avoid. Like Absolutely. You just didn't have to read the paper. Now you go on social media and you, it just hits you. Mm. see it, yeah.
0: Well, there were almost a few films where it was okay to, or, you know, popular culture decided The Simpsons did a joke about the crying game. Everyone made jokes about Psycho.
2: Planet of the Apes.
0: Planet of the Apes. Soylent Green. All the Chuck Heston movies of that era. (laughs) But but these days, there are so many different factors at play that we kind of have to redefine what a spoiler is and how we, you know, we've we've kind of got to reboot the whole term. As you say, the way we interact, we talk with Americans and with the English and so on and all around the world, everyone talks everything, everyone is aware of what's going on everywhere else and if there's a spoiler heavy film, you know Sixth Sense would not be the film it was when it came out, it would not if it came out today mm. that would be the first thing you would hear about the film is the twist, everyone would be on Twitter spoiling it
1: but, but this is the thing, I remember as far back as 1990 being told uh, that having films advertised is don't tell anybody what the ending is. I remember mm. it was done with mm. presumed innocent of all films.
0: Everyone and will presume he's innocent. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, don't tell them otherwise. But you know, we didn't have internet spoiler culture then. You know, we didn't have an
2: internet. You really have to go out of your way to avoid them. Mm. Yeah, like I've what? been trying to do with the Avengers.
0: Right. Yeah. And up until we talked about it a few minutes well, ago. Well, even
2: then, I still, I still don't feel like that has been spoiled for me yet. Good. Except it's built my expectations up, and that's what the the problem is with these spoilers yeah. as well. Is that I wanted to release an album called Expectations of Ruining My Movies. Just it sounded like a good album cover. It sounds uh, like a country music album. Though. Yeah, yeah. But ever since then, like when you, like I, I was going to tell you, like uh, one, of, one of the films, so imagine this film where you knew nothing about it, knew nothing at all about it, and it became one of my favourite films of all time. 28 Days Later. Went into an old cinema, didn't know anything. Didn't know it was about zombies, didn't know it was about horror film, didn't know anything at all. Watched it and it blew my fucking mind. (laughs) It scared the shit out of me. And I I went home and I called up all my friends and said, you have to see this movie. It is the best movie. I'm still scared. I don't want to go to sleep, all this (laughs) other stuff. And they all went and watched it as a group after hearing me spoil it just by saying how much I loved it. And then they went, oh, what's wrong with John? What an idiot. This isn't scary at all. And yeah. That you know. is a great point because there are a lot of people who think it's just
0: the plot elements and usually the plot elements from the last 20 minutes. But it's not spoilers are all about well, spoiling your expectations, spoiling the experience. Mm. They Where can do you refer. Draw your
1: line? This is the this is the interesting part of this, I think.
0: Well, like I mean as we were talking about with a friend of ours the other day, cameos at the end of films mm. that aren't yeah. that don't ruin the plot, but it's still part of the joy is seeing that person appear out of nowhere. Well, that was what
1: that was what sparked you on this whole topic wasn't it that was like, one of
0: the many things somebody yeah. revealed something about also, 21 Jump Street yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but also watching the final episode of The Sopranos mm-hmm. and having a friend of mine walk in while I was watching it who didn't watch The Sopranos but had read what the ending was and had read the reaction and the ending happens the, the very last episode oh, I go Oh, as a kind of absorb it. And he goes, yeah, it was pretty controversial. That's what everyone was talking... And he just sort of talks over that moment I was trying to have. <laughs> and now I can't think back to that last episode without hearing him. And that that spoiled the ending for me. Like, it didn't ruin it. Mm. It just spoiled the experience, what should have been a, a very profound experience. So even somebody you watching a comedy with, going, there's a really great joke coming up. There's a really great... That was it. That was the great joke. You just can't... You're not hearing the joke. You're not experiencing it. There was a study done by the University of California, and I use the word study in a very kind (laughs) way, um, that a lot of people cited who were sort of pro-spoiler, where they told people the ending of of a book or a film, and they had a control group and a focus group, and the people who had been spoiled enjoyed the work more. Right Now... I don't think this is very scientific, because what it doesn't take into account is that if you've been spoiled, in a sense, you're experiencing the spoiler for the second time. The people in the other group, they haven't measured what it was like to watch or read it for the second time after being unspoiled. There are a lot of different factors that come into play, and I can't take the results seriously, partly because of that, and partly because, like you, a lot of the films that remain big favourites of mine are are discoveries.
2: Hmm. Yeah.
0: I know people who see one of the films we're going to be talking about in a few minutes from Dusk Till Dawn I know people who and I'm even nervous saying this now mm-hmm. I know people who didn't know it was a vampire film when they were watching it they thought they were watching a Tarantino road movie and halfway yeah. through freaked the hell out
1: I think you're okay saying that because there is a photo of Tarantino half of his face vampiric on the back cover yeah. so I think you covered that
2: actually I'm, I'm one of those Yeah, I, didn't, yes. didn't, I watched Dusk Till Dawn I thought it was I knew it was a. actually I didn't know anything about it and I watched it and I I loved it because I just went and it, I did it did, I did exactly that just went oh there's vampires now oh shit what's going on yeah yeah it was great so that's quite amazing that therefore not having a spoiler like from Dust till dawn it then creates a memory that creates a memory of my past like I remember exactly where I was when I watched mm. from Dust till dawn
0: yeah I've got memories like that Shawshank Redemption, Usual Suspects. Yeah. My favourite films yeah. are generally those. See again, yeah. Usual suspects I knew nothing about yeah. going in. Um, and it's that thing,
1: it's part of the reason I love film festivals is because you get that authentic <laughs> experience. You get that completely green and often they're mm. just on the film festival circuit mm. so they're not being spoiled by too many people. Like, you know, the general fucking public haven't watched them. Send that up there and reviewers know better than to spoil them most of the time.
0: When I'm doing a film festival properly, you know what I know about a film going in? The time and the place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know what are you seeing today? Well I'm seeing one PM at the forum. Yeah. <laughs> and that way it's so pure an experience. Yeah. And those I love those films because of that. Yeah. But yeah, people just generally need to we kind of need to put out that message and get people to be more aware of what's a spoiler. You know, don't don't live tweet a comedy you're watching. Mm. Don't live tweet a film. How do we do this? How do we scale this back? You know,
1: the genie's out of the bottle now. Too Twitter and Facebook and mm. social media have changed it. Watch it's foreign films. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <It's pretty laughs> watch films it. nobody watches. Yeah, independent. Well, that's the thing. Films.
0: I'm stressed about things like Cabin in the Woods, a spoiler-heavy film, coming out months and months after the US release. I'm fine waiting for the new Malick film or the new Kurosawa yeah. film because yeah. they're not. People can't really spoil those for you. Mm. Yeah. So I'm fine waiting for those as long as I get to see them. It's the spoiler-heavy ones that people who use Twitter are more likely to talk about that I get a
2: little. And it's even about. funny,
1: like things like Inception. Like even if somebody tells you something about the third act of
0: Inception, mm.
1: it makes no sense unless you see the whole film. Mm. It's kind of an interesting way to get around it as well. Yeah. It's it's like well that reveals nothing to me. It means it means nothing. And then you see the film and it means something, but only after the fact. So you still kind of enjoyed it. So, yeah. All films should be like Inception. Uh,
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right, John, please tell us whom have you picked for your Hell is for hyphenates filmmaker of the month.
2: Oh, great! Uh, I have chosen Robert Rodriguez. Robert, Robert Rodriguez. Rodriguez. So,
1: what led you to pick Mr. Rodriguez as uh, our tech? Uh,
2: like I said, Tex-Mex auteur. Yeah, in the in the previous bit about uh, from Dust till dawn. Blew my head off when I watched it, and I still remember where I watched it and all that. And that, and then, uh, then I he sort of fell away a bit, and I didn't, I didn't, I watched uh, Mariachi and those well late into that, um, and I went through a phase of liking cheap movies, like movies that have been made on the cheap. Yeah. Um, when uh, the Blair Witch came out, and I just went, "This is amazing!" Like yeah. you made this for nothing, and then I looked up, you know. Movies that were made for nothing, and found Mariachi, and watched that, and really loved that. Mm. Although I did find out that uh, it got recut. He originally made it for seven thousand dollars, but what I saw was not the seven thousand dollars. Well, one.
1: this is mm. the argument. This is the thing that comes up, and I think it's a bit of a furphy because what he goes through this in his book, Rebel Without a Crew, which is also a thing, and it's that whole thing. I mean, maybe we should talk about it when we get to Mariachi, but. It's. Well, he, we can start with Mary Archie. It's yeah, well, his like first film in 92. Um, but when he starts with. Um, he shot the film for $7,000. There, And people go, oh, well, Columbia spent another 200000 or 300000 or whatever, you know, doing other things to it. And like doing things like including its marketing budget as well. Right. go, yeah. oh, there's been half a million dollars. Well, it's like, well, you don't include a film's marketing budget to its production budget. And he explains in his book that. The film is still the $7,000 videotape that he shot. Right. What what Columbia spent money on was transferring it, blowing it up to 35mm, and then colour correcting it. Right. And Rodriguez is of the opinion that they actually ruined the colour correction. And it is you see on the... There's a feature on the El Mariachi DVD where he compares the videotape to the film, and the videotape's colour is a lot sharper. Right. Um, And they managed to bleed a lot of that out of it. So... I think you're still seeing a $7,000
0: movie. Yeah, it's I think just I watched it you... on VHS. Yeah, there you go. There you go. He, he is he... the scrappy filmmaker, like the scrappy yep. filmmaker. I w- when I was a kid, I remembered seeing a news report in the morning before school on one of those morning shows talking an interview with a filmmaker who was talking about how he made a film so cheaply and he said you know what i had a friend with a bus i had a friend with an uzi i had a friend with a sword and He was talking, and that stuck in my head for years i thought what a great way to go about it and years later realized that i was watching uh, robert rodriguez promote el mariachi on its australian release mm. which uh looking back at it uh, you know astonished me i mean it's it's such a good pulpy film I think it in terms of first films like when you're talking about the great first films of that sort of 90s new wave it doesn't quite have the bite of a Reservoir Dogs but you know it still resonates and it's still you know of its time it's just such Mm. a fun simple
1: story Mm. and it's propulsive and it's fun and it has a sense of humour it's interesting Watching it recent, recently, the um, first time I watched it on like a large television and you start noticing a lot of the faults, like often their faces are too low to the bottom of the frame mm. and there's too
2: much. But air. then when you did that, did you go, wow, this is his first. Exactly. Yeah. And,
1: and, you know, he just made shorts with his family before that and one for short in film school and and you know and then basically did this and you have to remember he was 23 when he shot this mm. you know and you know all of his own back and all and it, there's the famous story of him raising half the budget by submitting himself to a month-long medical trial that's right and, yeah. and being a you know a guinea pig for a experimental drug and so here in three thousand of the seven thousand dollar budget there it's really inspirational For me personally, as as someone who aims to make low budget, Mm. uh, micro budget genre films, to watch it and see how he did it, he's never made a film more than fifty million US dollars. Yeah, which really, considering the actors he's had in his films and the profile of them, is quite amazing. Sin City was
0: Sin City was a forty million dollar movie. Jesus, that is impressive. Yeah, that is impressive in terms of Hollywood excess, That's extraordinary. I have to ask, what what is his second film? What is the name of his second now, film? Now, his second film... Well, are we talking television film or are we talking... I had not heard of this until yeah. we sat down to do this. He made uh, a thing called uh, Street Races. Road Races. Now, Road Races as part of an anthology. Yes, the Rebel the, Highway anthology. Yeah, which there were films like Drag
1: Strip Girl and other things, and his was Road Races.
2: See, so isn't this, that amazing too yeah. that he did like a Roger Corman thing and he probably... Uh, Looked up to Roger Corman, I guess, and went
1: on to do Grindhouse in the same spirit.
2: By the way, I've met Roger Corman. Yeah, yeah, really. Yep, he's the best person I've
0: met. <laughs> I won't take that personally, John. So yeah, 94's Street Races, which is David road races. You keep oh, saying street I've written races. it down as Street Races. This <laughs> it's Road, road races. races.
1: Which uh, is his first, uh, he has Selma Hayek, he has David Arquette, Yep. his yeah. third watch is Jason
0: Wiles, who's the... A young John Hawks. John Hawks. Yeah. It was fine.
1: <laughs> yeah, I found it was really cool up until the last act. And then the last act goes in a Weird direction that I didn't, that just didn't agree with.
0: Me. But it's it is a a signal of where he's going to go in terms of that throwing back to the iconography of the past, you know, of in terms of driving films, living in the past. Yeah, a bit. And I think this is kind of a big signifier, almost more than El Mariachi, of what his career is going to be. But then the next film is the one that really put him on the map: 1995's Desperado. Yeah.
1: Desperado.
0: Which was a $7 million film
1: at the time that looks like it cost 30 This was the one that really hooked me onto Rodriguez as a filmmaker. I saw this at the cinemas and it just had that great kind of midnight movie kind of feel to it. You know, um, great drive-in flick. So stylish mm. and such a sense of humour and a kind of a joy to it that action most action films don't have. Mm. It's got this distinctly Latin flavour as well. I love the way that Robert, uh, that Banderas who's never been more charismatic than he is in this film but you know watching him shoot guns and the way mm-hmm. I'm, I'm doing it here and you can't see it on the microphone but he's like kind of it's almost like a dance move the way he yeah. moves it's yeah. almost yeah. like he's about to throw
0: the gun at somebody as he's shooting it yeah. and it, it's such a stylish <laughs> film and it's one of his better ones absolutely I, think. I find it interesting that he took his cues from the Dollars trilogy he's a mm-hmm. big Sergio Leone fan and this was his uh, for a few dollars more I guess Whereas Leone would keep the same cast in each film and change the characters, he kept the characters from El Mariachi and recast it. Mm. So Bandera is basically playing the same character from El Mariachi, and the guy who played El Mariachi playing a different character in this film. Yeah, but it's got the great opening with um, Steve Buscemi
1: talking the mariachi character up to the pe- te- Cheech cheat yeah, yeah. and the people in the bar, and that whole great sequence with you know he's about to step out of the darkness, you're just about to see his face, and then the light covers him again, and all this sort of yes, myth building yes. stuff, which is so great, he's so good at, and inventive little stuff like his um his mariachi sidekicks with the the guitar case machine Yeah, yeah. and rocket Yeah, yeah. And God, this film's so much fun. It's fun stuff, and, and
2: that's pretty much. His thing is he just makes really fun films to watch. Like, his, probably what, Sin City's probably his most yeah. sort of more serious film. And that's a stretch. Like, that's...
0: Well, pretty... you say he I... makes a lot of fun films. Yeah. But, Four Rooms. <laughs> I now, come I've on, not now, seen this one. To be fair, yeah.
1: Rodriguez is, is probably the best. Y- no. Between uh, hi- I think between him thing- and Tarantino's.
0: I like I like Tarantino's one, even uh, though know, it's a bit of a rip. Um, I like Tarantino's one. Rodriguez's one, uh, which is called The Misbehaviors, and not as I originally thought, uh, Spy Kids. Um, <laughs> it kind of it, it ambles on for about half of it, and then really ramps up in the in the yeah. second half. This is an anthology movie did with uh, Tarantino and Alexander Rodriguez. Yep.
1: Oh, sorry, Alexander. Oh God, Alexander. What's his
0: name? Alexander something, and Alison Anders. Why
1: am I not remembering his name?
0: I don't know. I can't remember his name. And it was origin and also uh, Linklater was meant to be the fifth yes, room and, uh, right. and dropped out. It's very watchable, despite how bad it is overall. Because yeah. Tim Roth's the first so two stories are awful, but yeah, no, they awful. Are. Tim Roth's amazing though. He is great. A, so a little heavy handed at times though. He, he begins to
1: kind of grate on your nerves.
0: I love him in it, but um, it's not a Robert Rodriguez film. It's just something yeah, yeah. he contributed to.
1: Yeah, it's a little.
0: Rockwell! (laughs) Alexander Rockwell, Paul just exclaimed off mic. (laughs) But then
1: he goes into what I feel is, as John has hinted at so far, and I agree, his best film of all.
0: I'd like to third that motion. Which
1: is... And a team-up that should have happened more often with this calibration is
0: a screenplay
1: by Quentin Tarantino, directed by Robert Rodriguez. There should have been more of that. And that film is From Dusk Till Dawn which is still one of my all-time top 20 film, favourite films ever. I adore this film. It's one of my comfort films. It's one of the films I just... I could almost quote it word for word. I just... I saw this again. And I saw it in a movie marathon as well, so I saw it like a midnight
0: movie. Right. It is the perfect storm of, you know, I mean, Rodriguez not the greatest screenwriter in the world, but knows how to put a film together. Tarantino's screenplay, directed by Rodriguez, with... A sort of raw, uh, untamed Clooney in there, and that's that supporting cast of like Kaitel, and so it's just it's perfect. Like, yeah. I mean, even for its faults, it's got a lot of faults. It's still sort of perfect for what it is. But it's, it's a
1: so... perfect trash movie. Yeah. yeah, I think it's just so. And it I think it's still. I mean, we'll get to Grindhouse
0: later, obviously, but I feel like it's more
1: Grindhouse than anything in Grindhouse. It's because it, it's original. Yeah. It's not
0: trying to be something else. It's trying to be its own thing. Yeah, and I think that's why it works so and much. It's, a,
1: it's an homage kind of an homage to a general feeling, but it's it is very much its own thing. Yeah. It doesn't feel like anything else. It doesn't feel like you can point to a film from the 70s, which is just
2: like this. Exactly. Mm. Yeah, it's also yeah. the best uh, Tarantino has ever acted, I think, as I well. I totally agree. Every yep. other film that he puts himself <laughs> in, you just go, oh, why? Yeah. And then, but this one, he's actually... It's made for him. Well, he wrote it, so he's... Yeah, yeah
0: but, but he also wrote his roles in Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, and yet this was the one where you go... Here we go. Here we go. This is the
1: first, this is the only film Tarantino's acted in today where you're like, I wouldn't cast another actor in this. Yeah, yeah. He's
0: right for this. Actually, his best performances do come in Rodriguez films. Exactly. Because he's he's really good in... Planet Terra. In Planet Terra. In Desperado. Yes. Oh, he's hilarious in Desperado.
1: Rodriguez is the only person Tarantino should act (laughs) (laughs) act for. It's like Schwarzenegger and James Cameron. So it should only be in James yeah, Cameron yeah. movies. Yeah, um, yeah. it's he's Tarantino was so creepy and oh, odd oh. and offbeat and terrific in this and completely sincere.
2: And again, it's that same thing what we were talking about before, where like I when I I remember watching it and just not knowing what's going on. I didn't know who Tarantino was. Wow. When I watched it, and because uh, I was a kid, I was like maybe fifteen when I saw it. Yeah. And just. Oh, oh, it's horrible. Oh, like, so again scared and and weirded out and just it really is just another one of those films that really affected me as a, as a child and I always remember it because it. it
1: takes such sharp turns. Mm. Like yeah. the whole sequence when Clooney comes back to the motel and the yes. and the hostage isn't sitting there and it's like and you don't know what's gonna come here mm. because you've not really heard about what Taron what. Richie Gecko does it's horrible because of what they
0: don't show you yeah and, and it's so
1: perfectly horrifying because yeah they show the flashes yeah and it's done in such a affecting way it just it really gets in your head yeah absolutely and the way and the way Clooney's character reacts to it is also yeah. really awesome like it's such so sharply written yeah and then you know they, and then they get to the titties western and things get crazy <laughs> And but it's the right amount of crazy and you know it's it's funny and self-deprecating but not you know but not sort of too self-aware in that kind of yeah. meta look at what we're doing type yeah, way yeah. it all feels kind of naturally coming out of the situation and bringing like B-movie actors like Fred Williamson and John Saxon and Tom Savini and mm. all these guys into these roles is just fantastic.
0: It's the crest I think of Rodriguez's career. Absolutely. Without without foreshadowing or ragging on what what's about to come. It's the high point, I think. I want to talk about because his next film, five years later, was Spy Kids. Well, no, because
1: no. two years later, to nearly three years later, a month shy of three years later, was The Faculty.
0: Ah, uh, yeah. That, of course. I sorry, totally forgot about that. Because
1: he was well. That's the thing. Because it's the least Rodriguez film yeah. there is. I rewatched because, it a week ago and I forgot about yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's not a bad film. I just think it suffers from. It's very much... I think Rodriguez's work on it is really strong yeah. as, a, as a director and editor. I think the problem is it was written by Kevin Williamson mm. at a time when he'd just come off screen. And it's very... The Faculty is very much a Miramax project when Miramax had had become really prominent because of Pulp Fiction and Goodwill Hunting and they were trying to create their own studio. Yeah. And they had this stable of stars and this stable of writers and directors. And it was this kind of... It was kind of this Miramax Frankenstein where they got... The guy that wrote Scream and the guy that directed From Dusk Till Dawn and all the actors from all their other films, like you know Selma Hayek and like John Stewart is in it, and yeah. all these people that the Miramax were kind of using a lot, you know um, Josh Hartnett and Edward, um, not Edward Fernley, Elijah Wood, um, and all these people at the time. So it feels a little like a, a Miramax studio
0: project. It, it's the least Rodriguez of all the films, and it does, it, as you say, there was that that period where Miramax films written by Kevin Williamson was a genre. Yeah. Like, it was yeah. like, that's like a third of the output of Hollywood that <laughs> year, you know.
2: And what year was that?
1: 1998. Yep.
2: Yeah, so I think there was also a time when, like Scream, those yeah. sort of teenage kind of mm. semi-horror kind of funny films were getting out. And I guess they just went, this is as.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I think Rodriguez's work as a director is, is really quite... Quite good, and yeah. the film has a sense of humor. And, and it's fun seeing, you know, kind of Robert Patrick and, and yeah. Selma Hayek and various people that Rodriguez would use again. And this is a mm. bit of a theme in his work, too. Rodriguez yeah. has kind of a stock company of people he keeps coming mm. back to. Yeah. Cheech Marin, yeah, yeah, he yeah. In
0: a, Danny Treasure, yeah, yeah. yeah, who's yeah. his second cousin. Yes, all yeah. oh, right, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. okay, so then, so, so then at Spy Kids, yes, now this is where we l- l- let's talk about this phase of his career. Out of out of chronology, in two thousand and one, Spy Kids. In two thousand and two, the second Spy Kids film. In two thousand and three, the third Spy Kids film. The Adventures of Shark Boy and Lava Girl in two thousand and five. Shorts in two thousand and nine. Spy Kids four in two thousand and eleven. Those are his kids films. To date, they exist on a very special plane, separate. Well, it's like two separate filmmakers.
1: It's, Rodriguez has always felt like a man with two different careers. And the funny thing is a
2: lot of the kids' films are his biggest hits. Yeah. Box office-wise. But, but kids' th- films are always hits. Like, well, not always, but yeah. you know what I mean. But
1: for him, it just seems to be the, the genre films don't seem to do as well as the as the kids' stuff.
2: Well, that's... Uh, yeah, I a mean, beggar's I mean, belief.
0: They're <laughs> very special effects-heavy, very silly films yeah. and that sensibility of being a scrappy filmmaker of what do I have on hand I've got a bus and an Uzi I'll make El yeah. Mariachi what he has now because he's become so successful he goes what do I have on hand now I have a green screen and a lot of computer programmers who know how to do special effects and but that's kind of what he's got he's kind of created a mini studio yeah and so he can churn out these films mm. and they do look churned out a little yeah but the thing is they're kind of they're sort of half and half. They're half a genuine wish fulfilment. Like, what if what if you were spies? You know, what, yeah. if, what if superheroes came down and, and found you? What if this happened? He really gets the wish fulfilment thing that kids have. But they also feel cynical and pandering in the way that the worst Hollywood studio kids' film does. They kind of walk that line at the same time to varying degrees of success. For me, I think... On one end of the scale, you've got something like Shorts, which is quite innovative and fun. I actually think that works really well as a film. On the other, you've got Shark Boy and Lava Girl, which is kind of unwatchable. <laughs> um, well, this is the thing. I think.
1: The first Spy Kids has a modicum of. Like I enjoyed
2: r- the first Spy Kids. Yeah. A lot of people I actually did. found it funny. I thought it was. I, I really enjoyed it. It's go- yeah, it's good. I think
1: the thing that's in Rodriguez's favour with this stuff is they're all original ideas. Yep. And they're all really kind of stuff kids are really. I think he's very good at. I think having a lot of brothers and sisters as a kid and making a lot of films as a kid and, uh, and all that sort of thing and then having five of his own children. I think he's very connected to what kids like. Yeah, and he's always he's been at the forefront of digital filmmaking. He's one of the first guys to yep. kind of try that mm-hmm. on after Lucas, obviously, and he's been in the forefront of three D. Uh, There's times when he kind of almost reminds me of Ray Dennis Steckler with a budget in terms of some of these kids' films. Like the aesthetic is so slapped together and. You know, and I think the spirit's there. I think he means mm. it. Yeah. But there's there's just a, such a disregard. It's almost like our kids don't give a fuck how good the special effects are, so mm. I'll just make it look like we created a Windows Movie Maker. You yeah. Know? And yeah. he made El Mariachi. When he shot El Mariachi, he shot it for $7,000, and originally he was just shooting it for the Spanish Home Video Market. There's times when I think he was shooting his kids' films for the Spanish Home Video Market <laughs> still because... God damn! Like, some of it is just so Sp-
0: slapdash. Thr- Spy Kids 3 is easier to watch if you look at the casting of Antonio Banderas and Sylvester Stallone a- as a sequel to Assassins. So, <laughs> <laughs> and that's how I choose to look at it. That's the thing. You're watching Spy Kids 3D, which is a pretty awful film, but you've got the
1: most amazing cast outside of a Steven Soderbergh movie and they all just and all the actors from the previous Spy Kids movies come back to do cameos so suddenly you've got George Clooney Bill Paxton Antonio Banderas Sylvester Stallone Steve Buscemi
0: all of these people and it's just like what what are you doing in this film? It's because, yeah, it, it's two minutes of filming on yeah. a green screen. <laughs> that's the thing. They, I'm, I'm, what I'm tipping is they
1: all go around to Rodriguez's house in Austin. Mm. They step in his green screen that's just in a garage out the backyard, shoot for 10 minutes in costume, and then he cooks some barbecue and they have <laughs> Coronas together.
0: I think that's what gets them in. And but there's also a, a, a thing throughout all of these films, the misunderstood villain. There is ne- not a, an evil person in any of these films. These are horrible villains who generally have something very human and relatable, mm. which is something he really pushes in in all the Spy Kids films and outside of the Spy Kids films, in, in, in Shorts and, and Lava Girl, mm. uh, which is, again, admirable, just not handled that well.
2: Yeah. Did he write them as well? Yeah.
0: Yep. Right. Um, he wrote or co-wrote all of them, um,
1: as well as edited them all, either shot or co-shot them all, um, although he didn't edit Spy Kids 4. And this is something else, too because Rodriguez hit a point during this Spy Kids period of doing more and more stuff on his films because he kind of did everything on El on Mariachi mm. and he was, you know, kind of called the one man film crew. This is the case through most of the kids' films, but as far as um, Machete, he, co- he shares a lot of these jobs and then on Spy Kids 4, he drops a few of these dro- jobs mm. completely. Mm. Um, it seems like he's starting to kind of let go of a few of these things, but I think... In some cases, I think it works for him, but I think in particular in the Spy Kids films, it begins to seem to work to their detriment. You kind of wish
0: he'd had a crew around him. Yeah. Well, let's get back on track with his career (laughs) proper. 2003's Once Upon a Time in Mexico, his Good, the Bad and the Ugly, his closing off of his Mariachi trilogy.
1: Yeah, which Tarantino suggested the title. Really? Once Upon a Time in Mexico, because he kind of saw it as uh, Rodriguez's Dollars trilogy. Yeah.
0: It's got a lot of nice, iconic moments in it, but the film just doesn't do it for, for me. I, I liked it more on the second viewing because I was yeah. watching it on DVD instead of the cinema and I remember hating the digital look in the cinema and it just felt so wrong for something so gritty and dusty to be that sort of flat and digital. Mm. I remember that really grated with me. Right. On DVD, not so much. It doesn't come up so much.
1: Yeah, I just find, I find the gloominess of it mm. kind of annoying because Desperate... And I guess that's, the show, that's what the character's going through yeah. because characters and people have died and things like that mm. but desperado is just so joyful and just so kind of lusty that from Do- uh once upon a time in mexico just feels a bit mopey in comparison but i i like you have enjoyed it more on subsequent viewings mainly because of the performance of johnny depp yeah. mm. as sans who is both an awesome character as written by rodriguez and awesomely played by depp
2: yeah i mean it still has that same sense of, of fun in it i think i re- I, still, I really like it I still really enjoy it mm-hmm. mainly for the Johnny Depp thing and, and it's that same thing where most of the most of his films th- those kinds of films like when Dust or Dawn when the guy catches on fire yeah. you just go oh wow <laughs> and the same thing with Johnny Depp losing his yeah, eyes and getting a yeah. little kid to help him you just go oh wow this is really awesome <laughs> it's good yeah.
0: you know those there are those films that you love with reservations mm. and all you can talk about when you talk about the film is those reservations that's, I'm like
1: that with The Dark Knight,
0: I think. Yeah, I'm a bit like that yeah. as well. It was one of my top ten of that year, and all I can talk about is the few things that I don't like yeah. about it. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like that with Sin City, which was also one of my favourite films of that year, and all I can talk about are the, are the things that bother me, which kind of come back to Rodriguez's style, a lot of it. There, there are a lot of things. I, I, I think Jessica Alba's casting and how they handle that character. I think there are a lot of little things yeah, here that, and there. I but, love the way they create the world Yeah. with the... CGI, but at the same time, there were moments here and there where you can see like somebody lying on a green screen that they will later put a cobblestone thing under or or, or, uh, an asphalt. (laughs) That was my issue with a lot of the kids' films. You would often see something weird going on with the lighting on their faces. And then
1: um, my partner's daughter just blurted out as she saw me watching one. You could see the light of the green screen on your faces. <laughs> Yes.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: Thankfully, you don't get that so much in Sin City, but in the kids' films, yeah. definitely, and it's so cheap.
0: Well, Sin City is kind of like Spy Kids for adults. It's <laughs> great, creating this extraordinary world, but with lots of sex and violence in yeah, it. But yeah, But I, I think there's
1: a lot more craft, as, attention to craft as well.
0: I agree, and, and that's the, the sort of thing I tend to skip over a bit when I talk about it. And I'm tr- I want to try and get back to what he gets right about yeah. this film which is a lot which is mm. a ridiculous amount it's such a good film and it's so well captured i think and and yeah so it
2: captures the book i was a fan yeah. of the book and right. the books and the film and, and and it yeah i really enjoyed it and it and it does capture that frank miller th- yeah. sort of thing he he's a co-director director. Yeah, yeah yeah
0: but that again is a throwback to his love of film noir Two years later, he has a real throwback to his love of Grindhouse films when he and Tarantino do that Grindhouse double and Rodriguez's Ru- one is Planet Terror. Mm. Now, this is a big thing I have with Rodriguez where I admire what he does. or I, I No, I don't. I enjoy what he does. I enjoy the way he does it. I think he does this throwback really well. Planet Terror is a lot of fun. Mm. It's sort of one of his best films from the 2000s period. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that cut scene, the deleted scene, it kills me. I cannot stop laughing whenever they cut back from the missing reel. <laughs> but at the same That's time... such a great idea. I do have trouble with the fact that he, he's trying to go backwards too much. Yeah. And this is kind of emblematic of this, where he's trying to make a Grindhouse film, and he does it well, but I want him to try and do something new.
1: But I feel like it's less Grindhouse than Canon Pictures director, you know, sure. canon pictures in the 1980s. Like, sure, but I expect Like, no 70s grindhouse film would ever have, a you know, the money to have a woman with a machine gun leg. Yeah. yeah. You know, that's more of a crazy canon thing.
0: Sure, yeah. no, no, tot- yeah. totally. But I, like I say, he does these really, really well. Mm. But it feels like looking backwards rather yeah. than looking forwards. And I can't give him points for that as much as I enjoy it. Mm. You mm. know, I, I want to be more impressed by him because I know he's got it in him. Yeah. And Planet Terror really sums that up for me.
1: Yeah, look, he's undeniably talented. Like, I, th- the thing I don't get is he gets a lot of bashing for being a bad filmmaker, and I don't see it. Mm. Like, I don't, I honestly have no idea what these critics are talking about that he can't cut a scene properly, that mm. he can't mm. shoot a scene properly. Like, I don't know what rules they're applying. It's like, I'm, not everybody shoots like Hitchcock and Kubrick. Yeah, yeah. There are different ways to skin a cat. And I, I really like. I've always found Rodriguez's action scenes coherent. I've mm. always found his grasp of plot stuff coherent. I mean, I guess one general thing I have with his films—they all feel a little saggy in the midsection, generally. But other than that, I, th- I think he's enormously competent and has his own infectious love of genre cinema that just grabs me. But yeah, I, just, I, I can't begrudge him. That. Yeah, absolutely. But absolutely, he does, and he'll continue, and he as we go through his last couple of films today.
0: Well, yeah, now. I have to ask, Danny Trejo as the title character in 2010's Machete, is this the same character <laughs> that he played in Spy Kids? I know. His I've, character in Spy Kids is, is called Machete. Machete, yeah. And he's playing him again here. I reckon there's a case to be made, even though the character histories are completely different. <laughs> you could probably retcon it just enough to make it fit. I'm sure
2: Rodriguez has a connection. Yes. Yeah.
1: Or maybe the different universes. A unified And yeah. it's
0: Uncle Machete
1: in one and Machete in the other.
2: Yeah, well, pretty much you've just got to look at all Danny Trey's <laughs> films. He just plays that.
0: Well, this is kind of what worries me, much as I love Sin City, looking at sort of that Planet Terror machete. And, like, he's just announced that his next two films are going to be the Machete sequel and the Sin City sequel. Mm.
1: I know what you're saying about the loop, yeah. but I think I, I love Machete. It captures the exploitation feel. mm But not only in terms of look and, you know, the grain and all that sort of rubbish. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the actual,
0: the political underpinnings. I like that it's about something. Mm. That was a huge, I was not expecting that. No, really. no
1: Rodriguez film has ever been about something. (laughs) (laughs) It's It's like all of a sudden he's
0: making a point. And I hope he continues that. Mm. I hope he keeps that. But I also hope that in amongst these sequels to genre throwbacks, there's some new stuff in there. Being a teen in the '90s, I naturally went through a Tarantino phase, and you can't do that without going through a bit of a Rodriguez phase at the same time. Mm. So between *Desperado* and *From Dusk Till Dawn*, I was really in love with him in the '90s. I've since I'd since fallen out of love with him and really sort of rail, uh, felt distanced from his CGI-heavy work, his digital stuff. But going over them again in preparation for this podcast, rewatching everything. I'm kind of getting the affection back a little. Mm. I think overall I'm starting to sort of feel what I uh, what I used to feel for him and I'm kind of glad that I, I've been able to reassess his filmography like this. That's great. Because
1: yeah. I, I, I think the enthusiasm there, I think that's the yeah. thing with Rodriguez. I yeah, just that's
2: think- the main... Un- well, not the main, but that's one of the biggest undertones that I find with his stuff. There's That's why you always know you're seeing like a Rodriguez film when a woman has a machine gun for a leg <laughs> or someone gets yeah. their eyes cut out or... Or, you know, anything yeah. like that, someone gets their, their dick ripped off. You know, that sort of <laughs> thing you always know. There's not really many others that do that kind of thing, I, I yeah. guess. Yeah,
1: it's outrageous in a completely kind of gleeful, innocent, almost innocent type yeah. way. Like, like none of this stuff is ever offensive, which is kind of weird.
2: It's just And that's
0: something other filmmakers could benefit from, I think, that enthusiasm. Absolutely. It's
2: always that-, that thing, though. Machine guns in... in Guitar cases. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Missile launchers, Like, just yeah. this crazy guns strapped to Cross, a motorbike. Crosses yeah. guns, you know. Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. With, you
1: know, yeah. Fixes in them and yeah, yeah,
2: it's this weird thing that you can always tell one of his films. Yeah, it's always, uh, oh, the gun dick, the, you know, the dick gun thing. Yeah, yeah, like yeah That yeah. has got, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so,
1: but, yeah, I I think it's great. I think there, yeah, there's two very separate Rodriguezes, mm. And I find that his adult, let's call it, For want of a better term, his adult stuff. I find he always works in three genres. It's either Tex Mex action, schlock horror, or, you know, kids and then kids adventure for Mm. the other stuff. I think the adult stuff, I like him every single time. I always find there's something entertaining and like I said joyful. I think the kids' stuff, he could benefit with a little bit more attention to detail. (laughs) Which is
2: which is again very interesting that like his his adult stuff has childlike elements to it and you really you really enjoy those bits and then his kids films he, do, he can't seem to replicate that <laughs> that that enjoyable yeah. thing for kids like kids would love his adult stuff like when you were a little kid watching yeah. you know people get the shit kicked <laughs> out, you know that sort of thing but it doesn't seem to
1: and, I like, and you know what sometimes there's nothing wrong with just someone like we've got so many filmmakers with so many styles and so many meanings and themes and things sometimes it's nice to just have someone that just has
2: fun yeah yeah and that's his signature, I think. Like, all directors have their little. Well, good directors, I think, have a signature where you can tell it's their film. So.
1: Yeah. yeah, and his is just
0: fun and enthusiasm and joy for genre. And on that nice note, John, thank you so much for joining hey, us. Hey, no problem. Thank, thank you so much, lovely. sir. <laughs> it's been a great time. And we'll see the rest of you next month. Vaya con Dios.